This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. My name is Gabe Boyd. I serve as the Director of Family Ministry here at the Trails Church. And as always, it is a joy for me to get to have the opportunity to preach this morning and open God's Word with you. Uh, I'm so thankful when Matt leaves town for a couple of days. Uh, it, it just It's good news for me. Um, and so I'm really, really excited this morning, as I usually am. Anytime we get to open God's Word together, it is a joy. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, open to Nehemiah chapter 1. And all the crowd said, I'm sorry? <laughs> Nehemiah? Yep, Nehemiah chapter 1. Just as a precursor to why we're looking at Nehemiah today. Um, So this is kind of uh, an in-between sermon uh, this week in that we just finished four weeks in Psalm 51. Uh, Next week we'll start our brand new sermon series through the book of Acts. And so uh, today... um, it's, it's my joy to try to see if we can't maybe bridge the two together. Uh, but more than that, I just want to share with you guys some of the things that uh, have been my takeaway from Psalm 51, uh, but also the ways that the Lord has been challenging me uh, as we start to move into the book of Acts together. And I just thought it was just so much, not even a coincidence, but maybe just God's grace that at the end of Psalm 51, there's this plea of David for the Lord to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I thought, well, isn't that handy for me? As in Trail students, we are actually looking at the man who would literally rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so as I thought through, um, man, what, what would the Lord have me share with our church that would prove helpful for us? Um, I, I haven't been able to get away from this book. Um, because there's so much, I think, for us to learn, uh, not just about the mission that the Lord gave to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls, but his motivation to rebuild the walls. And so today, I want to take a little closer look at what, what is the motivation for you and I to, as we said, rebuild the walls within the Trails Church. As we learned last week, that just simply means to edify and build one another up. What is the motivation for us to build each other up as a family of faith? How do we do that? And so we're going to look this morning at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. But I want to read for you the first three verses. So if you're able and willing, I'd invite you to stand up with me as we read God's word together. This is his holy and inerrant word. Nehemiah 1. Verse 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You guys can be seated. 
So the other night, um, I was watching a movie, and um, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie like this before, but uh, right after the opening credits started, um, I, the scene pops up, and there's this guy, and he's uh, armed with, with guns everywhere. You can tell what kind of movies I like, right? Um, there's guns everywhere, right? Uh, he has what looks to be like some sort of like army gear on, and um, he's, he's got some, some wounds, and he's kind of limping, and as it kind of pans out away from him, uh, you see that he's on a bridge where there's cars wrecked, and then all of a sudden there's bullets flying and explosions happening, I'm like, yes, exactly what I was looking for tonight. But within the first 60 seconds of that movie, I was drawn in, like thrust right into the middle of the action of the movie. And I couldn't wait to see what happened. But what happened for me is that as I'm watching this, this 60 seconds of action, like my brain is immediately firing off all of these questions. Like, who is this guy? Why are people shooting at him? Is he going to survive? What is going on? Well, maybe when we read a verse or verses like Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3, you start firing off with some questions. Like, who's in exile? Why are the walls broken down and the gates on fire? Like, what's happening, Gabe? Well, why are we in Nehemiah? Well, um, when it comes to movies and books, this narrative strategy of throwing you right into the action, there's actually a, a Latin phrase. Uh, it's a literary term called in media res. Is anybody familiar with this? If you're a student, you better be, because we, we talked about this on Wednesday. Okay. Um, in media rest, it's a Latin phrase that simply means in the midst of. And it's the strategy that authors and producers will use to capture your attention right at the beginning of a movie by throwing you into the middle of the action. And then what will happen is they'll cut away from that and usually they'll say six weeks earlier, right? And they'll spend the next couple of hours leading, answering all your questions and leading you back to this kind of main action scene and then ultimately give you the conclusion to the movie. It's just, it's just a strategy to try to get you to bite. And, uh, well, for that movie, it worked for me. I'm hoping that um, as we look at Nehemiah, maybe, just maybe, you're starting to ask some questions. And so I want to help us by just traveling backwards, not just six weeks, but several hundred years before. I'm not going to take us all the way back to Genesis because i got to get moved pretty quickly, but I think it's helpful for us to get some context before we actually look at the man Nehemiah, to get some context of, well, why are the walls down and who are these people in exile? And so um, I, I want to start really with, uh, with the first king of the nation of Israel after they left uh, slavery in Egypt. His name was Saul. After Saul came a man named David. Surely you're familiar with David as we've been looking at the Psalms of David all summer long. Now, a few things that we know about David is that, uh, one, he was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. But the other thing that we know is that David was by far not even close to a perfect man. David had a shady past and some, well, some pretty egregious sin on his record. But nevertheless, he's still known as a man after God's own heart. 
The other thing that you need to know about David is that under his leadership, the nation of Israel uh, really started to flourish. It really became kind of this powerhouse nation um, that, that God had helped them um, get to this place to where like people were scared of them. I mean, you think about how many times David whipped the Philistines. Like eventually you're going to think they're going to stop attacking, but they just keep coming back for more. And God keeps giving them success. Well, after David comes his son Solomon. Solomon was a wise king. It was during Solomon's rule and reign that the temple was built in Jerusalem. And so now the people had a place where they could rightly worship the Lord the way that he had instructed them. Now, towards the end of 2 Chronicles, um, we see that... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so after Solomon, uh, we see uh, this guy named Rehoboam come into the picture. Now, Solomon had an idea that Rehoboam was uh, probably not going to be a good leader, uh, even though it was his son, as he starts to write some foreshadowing things for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. But what we see in Rehoboam's kingship is that um, the nation of Israel would fracture, and you would have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So let, let me describe for you what happens between these two tribes. So you have the northern tribes of Israel. They maintain the name Israel. And then they start to appoint for themselves rulers and kings. And they start to develop this rhythm of leadership for their nation, Israel. And it goes like this. Bad king, bad king, bad king. Bad king, bad king, bad king, but, okay, like you get the picture, like it's not getting better until 722 B.C. when the Assyrians would raid and eventually sack Israel. The people fled and are now sent into exile. The southern tribes take on the name Judah. So Judah has a little better track record than the northern tribes Israel of assigning leadership. Their rhythm goes like this. Bad king, good king. Bad king, good king. Bad king, okay, you get the picture, right? They were able to uh, prosper a little while longer until 586 B.C. when the Babylonians would then raid, sack, and destroy Judah. So uh, it, it's, it's during this time that, well, um, it, that the Persians would now take over. So the Assyrians are gone, Babylonians are gone. Now the Persians are kind of the dominant world order. And it's in 2 Chronicles towards the end where the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, makes a decree that some people should go back and start to rebuild the temple inside of Jerusalem. And so we're going to see three different return trips to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The first two um, are people that will go back. The first one is uh, the, the plans are thwarted through some opposition. The second one, they're able to rebuild the temple. The third return trip to rebuild Jerusalem is done by Nehemiah. And his mission from God is to go back and rebuild the walls. Okay? There's your context. Um, a couple of things that you need to know about Nehemiah. If you continue to read in chapter 1, Nehemiah uh, is the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Well, what does that mean? It simply means that Nehemiah is trusted by the king. Trusted by the king. He's a man of great power, position, and influence. He's a man who is living in comfort and ease in the king's palace. I mean, he's got it made, y'all. He's drinking the best wine. He's eating the best food. Like, there's not one thing that this guy has got to worry about in his life. 
He's got it made. But here we see in verses 1 through 3 that at some point, some men from Judah make their way into Susa where Nehemiah is. Now, Susa is over 800 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. 800 miles away, okay? Just keep that in the back of your mind. And when these people get there, Nehemiah starts to ask them some questions. Hey, how are your people? How are our people doing? See, Nehemiah was a Jew, and he recognized these other men as Jews as well from the land of Judah. He says, how are the people that were sent into exile? How's our city? And he gets this report, and in verse 3 it tells us that the remnant that are in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The nation of Israel is in great trouble in shame. Well, why are they in great trouble and shame? Well, because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are on fire. Now, what you need to understand about walls in this time period is that a wall around a city was maybe more important than even the army itself. That a wall provided protection for the people inside the city from any band of robbers or rebels that may come in and try to attack. It protected them from other nations from coming in and trying to take over. The wall was this central security uh, measure that a, a city would enforce in order to protect itself. The other thing that a wall did was it allowed you to control the things that happened inside your town, inside your city. Okay, you don't seem impressed. Let, let, me, let me give it to you this way. Let, let's pretend that today you leave and you drive home from church. You pull into your driveway, and as you approach your home, you notice that somebody has removed the front door from your house. Okay? And upon further inspection, you notice that somebody has broken all the windows in your house. So you walk inside to see what in the world is happening, and you notice that your back door is gone as well as the fence around your backyard. Well, it's Sunday. Ain't nobody coming to fix that problem. And so you lay your head down tonight and you close your eyes and you attempt to go to sleep. What kind of sleep are you going to get that night? For me, zero. Well, why? Because any security measures that I've at one time felt like I had... I no longer have. I've lost the control or the ability to control who comes in, but I've also lost the ability of who goes out, right? I no longer have control of just locking the door and making sure that nobody who would cause me or my family harm can come in. But I've also lost the ability to control the things that happen inside my home because if I have no doors, my dogs, whoop, they go. If I had a toddler, there's nothing that stops a toddler from toddling its way out into the street. Now, all of a sudden, like, we see that walls are really, really important. And especially for Jerusalem. That the people in Jerusalem with no walls run the risk of no protection from the outside and no control on the inside. I think it's so interesting because before we start talking about how are we going to become a people who edify and build one another up? 
How are we going to be a people that build the walls of Jerusalem by building the walls of the trails, not literally, but internally? If we're going to be these kind of people, people whose hearts burn with compassion for one another, we first have to learn how to find out the condition of the people around us. And if, you, and if you're not careful, you'll miss here in the first three verses something really, really important. It says it in verse 2. And I asked. You see, Nehemiah was an important person. I'm sure that he had people coming to him all the time. I mean, certainly the king is coming to Nehemiah all the time. He's a man that is trusted within the palace. But Nehemiah, even though he was a man of position, influence, and importance, he saw some people that he knew were a part of his family, and he stopped what he was doing. He put pause on his life just for a moment to ask a few important questions. I think this is so significant because I think within our culture, we are so prone to running so fast that we have this tendency to only look down at what's right in front of us instead of what's up and out and around us. I'm talking about people, y'all. That so often within our culture, like we, we've, we've turned uh, what is supposed to be us doing good for one another into what's good for me. Like, how do I succeed? Well, i got to work hard. How do I flourish? Well, I've got to make sure that I'm happy. I mean, this is what we're fighting against. We're fighting against a culture that says, you focus on you. Do what's best for you. Don't worry about others. You ain't got time for that. This is the fight that we're fighting, and this is what we're wrestling with, because what God's word says is that we should be a people that look up and out, not down and in. That if we're going to be people who edify the body of Christ, who lift up and build up the family of faith, then we've got to start looking out. We've got to put pause on our own wants and desires and start to ask questions of the people, the brothers and sisters all around us. This is what Nehemiah does. In order for us to understand their needs, we've got to slow down. So what is Nehemiah's response to the news that he gets? Well, let's read verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I mean... Like, guys, I, I, I've been looking at this verse for over a month now, and I, like, every time I read it, I can't get over it. That Nehemiah, upon hearing the, the trials of his people, mind you, he's 800 miles away, but he considered the, these people his people. They're Jews just like him. There's no way, like they're so far separated by time and space that Nehemiah doesn't know the names of a single person in Jerusalem. But when he hears the news of them, like the strength in his legs is completely zapped and he has no choice but to sit down and start crying. Like he's completely heartbroken by the plight of the people that he knows and that he loves. He doesn't know their name, but he knows that they're a part of his family. They're a part of 
of what he belongs to. And all he can do is sit down and mourn, and not just for a couple of minutes, y'all. Like, for days, for days he mourns. For days he cries. He's heartbroken. Like, you want to talk about, about someone with great compassion? Talk about Nehemiah, 800 miles away, a people that he doesn't know directly are suffering, and he's heartbroken by it. Now, can I just be real honest with you? The reason that I can't get off of this particular verse is because it is personally, it's like, it's personally affected me. Because I look at it and I think, man, sh- surely, surely this is just a descriptive passage for us. Like, like, surely this is just the Bible describing the heart of Nehemiah. It can't be a prescriptive passage where it's prescribing for me the kind of heart that I should have as a Christ follower. Surely that can't be the case. It's got to be descriptive because maybe God just wired Nehemiah a little more tender than he did me. Maybe he wired him just a little more compassionate than he did me. This can't be how I'm supposed to live my life, the way that I'm supposed to look out for other people. But guys, the more I read the Bible and as I look back at Psalm 51, this is exactly what my heart should look like. It's exactly what your heart should look like. Hearts that are broken. Hearts that are broken for persecution, broken for people that don't know Jesus yet, broken when we see un- injustice. And like it's, it, it, like it's been really hard because I'm like, man, I, I, I want to I be this kind of man. I want to be a man who builds others up, who edifies the body of Christ. But man, there's everything in our culture that tells me to do the opposite. And so, like, I'm wrestling with these things. And then I start having these thoughts of, when's the last time that my heart broke for something that didn't directly impact me? When's the last time your heart broke for something that didn't directly impact you? I've been wrestling with this question because for Nehemiah, like nothing that was happening in Jerusalem was going to affect his life. Not a single bit. He's 800 miles away. He's got it made in the shade. Dude's living in a palace. What happens to these people is not going to affect him one bit. Yet his heart breaks for them. And so I've been thinking, like, when's the last time that my heart broke? Like, why does my heart not break for those people groups that we pray for every single week? Why doesn't it break for these people to come to know the Lord? Why doesn't it break for the, for the, the missionaries that will go there and proclaim the gospel to these people? who are facing the threat of persecution every single day, maybe putting their lives on the line. Why is my heart not breaking for these things? I want a heart like Nehemiah. In Zechariah 7, verses 8 through 10, I think this notion of um, this being a prescriptive passage for you and I in terms of the condition of our hearts 
is validated when Zechariah says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against anyone in your heart. And this is just one example. There are many examples within Scripture that would say, for you and I, as followers of Christ, we are to have hearts of compassion. Hearts of compassion, even if it doesn't affect us. Matthew 7, 12, this is the golden rule. Can I just show you um, how, how devious our culture is, how it likes to put a twist and a spin on things? Because Jesus says, according to Matthew 7, 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. But what our culture has done is that it's made this This verse, the golden rule, about us. Like, stop being mean to me. I would never be mean to you. This is how we use it, right? It's the golden rule. But what's happened is we've turned it to make it about us. This is not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, no, no, you look at somebody who's destitute and you put yourself in their shoes. And then you look at them and you say, how would I want somebody to treat me if I was in their spot? And then you treat them that way. The golden rule is not about me, it's about how I should be treating others. But we've twisted it. This is where we're at, this is where like, I'm wrestling, where I want to be a man of compassion that looks at people and says, if I was in that spot, how would I want people to help me? Lord, use me to help that man or that woman or that child in that way. This is Nehemiah's heart. He says, it's not affecting me, but I see them, and they're my people. I've been trying to think, like, is there, is there something that has broken my heart in a way like this? And I've asked people this question before, and the answer that keeps coming up is, is 9-11. Where there's this time and place where, where it didn't impact me directly. It happened in a, hundreds of miles away. But for some reason, there was this bond that we shared as Americans. Where we said, not on our watch. If they're hurting, I'm hurting. If they're in trouble, I want to help. And and that's right, and that's good. But surely, surely if, if there's this bond that we feel as Americans, there should be an even greater tie to those that fall under the banner and the lordship of Jesus. That together as a family of faith, surely there's got to be a more familial connection between us to where even if it doesn't impact us, if it's hurting you, it's hurting me. Lord, use me to step in and do something about it. And this is what Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah prays that the Lord might use him to help those that are in need. So, so let's look at his prayer because here's the deal is I don't want to just tell you guys in order for us to build the walls or build up the Trails Church to edify one another, now go and do it. I think the natural question is, well, how, Gabe? How, how do we grow in our compassion for one another? How do we grow in compassion for those that are within the family of faith? Well, look with me at verses 5 and 6 in Nehemiah. I'll start at the beginning of verse 4. It says, um, while he's weeping and mourning for days, it says, And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. I love that Nehemiah's first reaction to a broken heart is to run to the Lord in prayer. Like this is his first reaction. He doesn't just jump up and move into action. He says, no, no, let, let's go before the Lord first and let's start to pray for these people. And then let's pray and see what God might do through us to help. And maybe it's I just need to sit still and continue to pray. I was thinking about this, that if my heart broke for everything that I saw, my prayer list would be so long. And I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when it just feels like things are like so out of sorts that like my, my prayer request list is, is overwhelming. And then I think about passages where it says that we should be people that pray without ceasing. And when I read that, it seems crazy. Like, would it pray without ceasing? Well, listen, y'all, if your heart is broken for the things you see around you, I don't know how you could ever stop praying. Because there's so many things for us to not keep to ourselves, but turn over to the Father, to give back to Him. So, how do we grow? Well, I think we do what Nehemiah did in his prayer. I love the beginning. I've tried to almost start all of my prayers this way now. He just recognizes the awe and wonder of who God is. Does this sound familiar? Maybe familiar language to how, how David wrote his psalm in Psalm 51. He just stares at who God is, the awe and wonder of his majesty, the God of heaven. He says, he just looks at his greatness, his awesomeness. And then he just praises the Lord for his faithfulness through his promises. And through his steadfast love to those he loves. So as he stares at the awe and wonder and majesty of who God is, he's reminded of his own sinfulness. Not just his sinfulness, but the nation's sinfulness. His father's sinfulness. That he comes from a long line of sinners, as do you and I. And he's just reminded that, man, if it weren't for your grace, where would I be? And just like David, Nehemiah in his prayer doesn't run away from the Lord because of his sin. He turns from his sin and runs to the Lord. This is the track for you and I, is that as we start to understand who God is and who we are in light of Him, and as we run to Him, then can I just tell you that He will renew your heart. He will restore your heart. Because listen, you cannot have a heart like Nehemiah if you have not been given a brand new one. There is no rebuilt heart. There's no refurbished heart that is capable of compassion and heartbrokenness like that of Nehemiah. 
Only a new heart, a brand new heart, is able to have compassion on other people, to care more about the needs of others than my own. And this is the heart that the Lord offers us upon salvation. Not to make a better heart, but to give us a clean heart. This is what David prays in Psalm 51. Give me a clean heart, O God. Forgive me of my sins. If you're here and you're like, Gabe, I, like, I've never heard of anyone who has compassion this way. But I think that I would like to be someone who is compassionate upon the people around me in this way. Well, then you first need to repent of your sins and come running to God who is able and willing to, to save and to forgive. And that as you do, you are given this new heart, this capable now of compassion. And this compassionate heart is one that will build up those around you, that will edify the body of Christ. This should be all of our prayer. That if you came here this morning and you are in Christ, the charge that I have is for you to love others. To love others. There's a phrase that I'm using with our students since uh, and I'll continue to use it as we track through Nehemiah. Because I think it's so important for us to understand this simple fact. It says that our love for others originates with our understanding of how much we've been loved by God through Jesus. That our ability to love others starts with our understanding of how much God loves us. And how he's proven that love to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that if we would just press into that, remind ourselves of that, rehearse the gospel to ourselves and to one another, that maybe, just maybe, we would be a people who would live lives that desired to edify one another, especially those within the household of faith. And so... Um, I hope that you're seeing that in David's Psalm 51, there is this natural progression of us moving from this clean heart into a compassionate heart that cares for others. Because here's the deal is that before we get into the book of Acts, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see a new church whose hearts are so compassionate that no one in their church is in want or need. And that it is this kind of church that takes the world by storm. That it's people living in the Spirit of God and allowing God's Spirit to work through them. That their compassionate hearts become so attractive to an unknowing world that the church starts to explode. It starts to explode in the book of Acts. And I think the same is true for us, is that if we would be a church, a tr the Trails Church, who desires to edify and build one another up, I think it would, it would ripple through our community. This is a place where you are known. This is a place where you are seen. This is a place where people care. So my prayer for us has been a simple one. It's that... God would use us to build people up, to build our church in a way 
that uses the power of the gospel through the love of Christ for the flourishing of all of us. And that we would have hearts of compassion that long to live for God's glory alone and that by living for his glory, we might find great joy. And that as we live joyful lives, we would look up and out and serve one one another so that others may flourish in their own pursuit of Jesus. This is my hope for us, Trails. Would you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the heart of Nehemiah. Father, I pray that as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of you and your great love for us, that you would instill within our own hearts compassion, mercy, forgiveness, all the things that you have so freely and richly given to us, God, may we give those to one another as we edify the people around us who are chasing after you as hard and as fast as we are. Use us, I pray, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 